This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon, dear listeners. We're starting a bit delayed, but we'll catch up with the time. Thank you for joining us on the Sunday Afternoon Show with Maud Warrett. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. So, good afternoon, listeners, and thank you for joining us. We're a little bit late in our start, but we'll catch up with time. Today, we are going to start our topic, which is neurodiversity and neurodivergence. This is my third radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself again. I am a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I've lived in the UK since 2008, and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach languages, Spanish and French, as well as humanities, history and geography for KS3. I have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector. If you wish to follow me on Twitter, my profile is at profprofmfl, and all views are my own. So today I want to focus on one topic that is very relevant to me as an educator and also personally in my daily working life as well as at home. The podcast and discussion will both be on the topic of neurodivergence and we will have a guest speaker after four o'clock who is not a professional educator but nonetheless has a lot of experience to share as a parent who has a neurodivergent family. So this month happens to be Autism Awareness Month. So I wanted our listeners to take the time to gather as much useful information on the topic of neurodivergence as possible. This is very useful in order to improve your general knowledge, but also if you're an educator, to improve the way you teach in your classroom and also your daily life. So to, to achieve this, I'm encouraging you to check some websites. The first one I would recommend is www.autism.org.uk, which has a plethora of information available for you. And there is also www.autisticuk.org, which is also very, very important to check if you want to know more about today's topic. I'm saying hello to Lucy, who's joined us on the chat. Remember, you can interact with us on air in the chat and you can also call. So you're going to ask me, what is neurodivergence? Because that's quite a big word, isn't it? So first, neurodivergence is often seen in opposition to another term, which is neurotypical. Neurotypical means that a person 
or a child thinks and processes information in ways that are typical and expected within one's cultural environment. It means that, for instance, a child will start babbling around six months old and then a toddler might start saying words around 12 months, at around 12 months old. This is what happens usually for neurotypical babies. So a neurotypical person will tend to learn skills and reach develop, development milestones around the same time as their peers. As I said, with the baby, it might be six months for babbling. And then as a toddler, 12 months for saying words. Now, in opposition to that neurotypical way, neurodivergence is when a child develops at his own space, in his own space, and at his own time. So a neurodivergent child is a child who will process information in a different way, in a way that is maybe not typical and in a way that might be surprising. So autistic people and those diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, or attention deficit disorder, ADD, and other similar conditions, sometimes are classified as being neurodivergent. So, as an example, a neurodivergent child might not start babbling or talking like his peers around six months and then 12 months. A neurodivergent child might not be vocal until he or she reaches primary school. Some might not speak at all, and then they won't even have practice babbling, they'll go straight to forming sentences. This is an example of what a neurodivergent child might do. Now, a neurodivergent person has a different way of understanding and interacting with the world. And I just wanted to share with you this term that has been penned by a man called Kerry Opai. So Kerry Opai lives in um, New Zealand and um, he, he spent a lot of time thinking about the way we treat people who are neurodivergent in our schools and in our society. He had a very dear friend in, in his school, it was called Peter, and Peter was bullied by other students because Peter would, was autistic. So Kerry thought a lot about his friendship with Peter, and he came to create a new term to describe people like Peter. It's a, a Maori term that Kerry invented, and it's takiwatanga. Takiwatanga means in his own in his own time and in his own space. I think it's absolutely lovely as a definition of someone who's neurodivergent. A neurodivergent child will achieve milestones, but only on his own terms, in his own time and in his own space. So I quote Kerry Opai. He's got a website. You might want to check it out. So when he talks about autism, he says, this is what I based my interpretation on that people with autism tend to have their own timing, spacing, pacing, and life rhythm. So I think that's a very beautiful way of saying, expressing what neurodivergency means. So 
as educators, we do believe that words have a lot of power. If we look at the etymology of neurodiverse, neurodiverse means that you have a diversity of experiences. So when you use the term neurodiverse, you're celebrating the unique and personal approach of the people you're describing. To the world, neurodivergent people have a different way of thinking and it might enrich our lives. The term neurodiversity was coined by a woman in 1998. She happens to be autistic and she's an Australian sociologist named Judy Singer. So thank you, Judy, for that beautiful word of neurodiversity. I think it, it just shows how important it is to see it in a positive way for what it brings. Now, a lot of people are not so keen on neurodivergent. So I'm, I'm giving you these two options. Today, we can talk about neurodiversity after Judy Singer's term and neurodivergence. The issue with divergence is that it implies that there's a right way and then there's, there's other ways that might enter into conflict with the right way of doing things. So this is what divergence means. And it might emphasize the difference and also a form of distanciation from the accepted norm. And I think we're all here because we all know there's no such thing as the norm, literally. So just so you know, two different words, you might want to use them interchangeably if you're in a medical setting, but bear in mind that some people might react differently to them. Now, there is also a symbol for neurodivergence. This is a radio show, so I'm going to try and describe that symbol. Can you picture a number eight, except instead of standing vertically, it's going to lie to its side. And then it becomes the infinity symbol. So picture that infinity symbol and then imagine it's following the colors of the rainbow. So it's an eight lying on its side with the colors of the rainbow. This is the symbol for neurodivergence and it de denotes diversity and also the infinite and multitude of ways to express neurodivergence. Not one person who's got ADHD or who is on the autistic spectrum is going to behave the same way. And this is a wealth of experiences. So I'm going to read what appears in the chat. Um, one contributor said, it's better to consider individual differences when educating children. And this is a very important part of our discussion today. Definitely. We're going to praise differences today because th that's what makes a classroom. Now, Nick Walker is a very interesting character. Dr. Nick Walker, I should say, because he's a professor of psychology at California Institute of Integral Studies. So Nick Walker is describing herself because um, Nick Walker uses the she and her pronouns. So Nick Walker is describing herself as queer and autistic. She is a queer and autistic author and she's got a website that you might want to check out. So Nick Walker wrote an essay entitled, What is Autism? in 2014 and that's a very important essay because it's trying to define it 
in non-medical terms. Because since the 60s, we've had lots of essays written by doctors, psychologists, psychotherapists, and psychiatrists trying to describe what autism is. And it was always seen as something medical, um, something to fix, something to dissect, and with lots of medical terms. And Nick Walker wanted to do something different. He wanted to praise the diversity of people on the spectrum. And he really wanted to give a positive outlook on things. So for, for her, uh, for Nick Walker, to describe autism as a disorder represents a value judgment rather than a scientific fact. So we're trying to get inspired by that positivity of thinking. I'm going to use words that I took from Nick Walker's website. Neurodiversity is an essential form of human diversity. The idea that there is one normal or healthy type of brain or mind of one right style of neurocognitive functioning is no more valid than the idea that there is one normal or right gender, race or culture. The classification of neurodivergence, such as autism, ADHD, dyslexia and bipolarity, as medical or psychiatric pathology has no valid scientific basis and instead reflects cultural prejudice and oppresses those labeled as such. The social dynamics around neurodiversity are similar to the dynamics that manifest around other forms of human diversity. And these dynamics include unequal distribution of social power. Conversely, when embraced, diversity can act as a source of creative potential. So the words of Nick Walker, very interesting um, outlook, the positivity of seeing differences as something that's bringing wealth to society. Um, moving on from, uh, yeah, if you want to check Nick Walker's website, it's called um, neuroqueer.com. The idea I want to focus on now is autism in a spectrum. And uh, it is a very difficult idea to get your head around. The most common traits that we're familiar with when we think about someone who is neurodivergent are differences in sensory experiences. So you might have uh, a child who um, refuses to try some food because the taste or the, the texture is um, causing issues. It might be... Um, happening as a form of repulsion against some items, some, some fabric, some material, or an appreciation of some materials, or sensitivity, sensitivity to the outside world, such as light, sound quality, environment, and scent. So you might have a student who is very sensitive to touch, scent, and all the five senses. There are also non-standard ways of learning and approaching problem solving. So a good example you might have in your classroom is a child who seems to go from one task to a task that is way more difficult, but that child will find the difficult task easier than the simplest task. Someone who is neurodivergent or neurodiverse might also be atypical and enjoy very repetitive movements 
um, they might need to hold onto an object. They might need to um, move back and forth if that's necessary in, in, a, in a situation of stress. You can also have a common trait, which is being deeply engaged and deeply focused on an interest or a specific subject. And you might, you might have some students who are a fountain of knowledge. Um, I remember one student in my geography lesson who was able to give me the birth dates and the date of um, death of Margaret Thatcher and um, uh, the Cuban leader, Fidel Castro. Uh, which is quite unusual for a 14 year old, isn't it? Um, so they have very, very particular knowledge, a very vast knowledge and encyclopedic knowledge as well. There is also a common trait associated with neurodiversity, and it might be a need for consistency, routine and order. So an attachment to repetition in the way the day is organized. And the last one um, is the difficulty in understanding and expressing typical social interaction. So a famous example might be a student who doesn't realize when he's coming too close in the physical space of someone else, and he doesn't realize that that other person might take offense. So it's a maybe misreading social cues that are easily understandable for someone who might be neurotypical. So these are the most common traits that you might see in your classroom of children who might be neurodivergent or neurodiverse. Now there's a very, very important aspect of the idea of spectrum we need to focus on now. Spectrum is not like a survey where you have a gradient from uh, zero to five and zero would be not autistic or neurotypical and five would be very autistic and neurodivergent or neurodiverse. This is not how it is. Being on a spectrum is not like a gradient. It's more akin to a circle. And again, this is a radio show. So I'm just going to ask you to imagine a circle with different shades of rainbow colors. So you would have maybe a quarter of that circle which is motor skills, another one perception, and maybe a slice of that circle that's executive function, another one that's sensory, and the last one language. And your autistic child or your neurodiverse child might be on some places on that circle. <coughs> beg your pardon. So it might be a child who is nonverbal, but he might have amazing motor skills and also very good perceptive skills. So it's not a gradient from a little bit to a lot. It's a shade of colors and different abilities. Rebecca Burgess, who is an autistic illustrator, has drawn a comic book that is very useful for anyone who wants to understand more about neurodiversity. It's called Understanding the Spectrum. She uses a character, Archie, and Archie explains what being on the spectrum means. So I'm going, to call, I'm going to quote Archie, the character. The truth is, though, someone who is neurodiverse in some areas of their brain will also be no different to your average person in other areas of their brain. So it means that 
all of us might have traits that might be described as on the spectrum. Um, but it's, it's the wealth of our students that they might all have a very different way of experiencing them. Now I'm going to focus on ADHD as well, just because I have a personal experience of ADHD in my family. My partner has ADHD and my son has ADD. So I'm going to list the common traits and I'm sure you're going to recognize some of it in yourself and some of it in your students if you're an educator. Common traits of ADHD are a lack of attention to detail, carelessness, continually starting new tasks before having finished old ones, poor organizational skills, inability to focus or prioritize, continually losing or misplacing things, forgetfulness, restlessness and edginess, difficulty keeping quiet and speaking out of turn, blurting out responses and often interrupting others, mood swings, irritability and a quick temper, inability to deal with stress, extreme impatience, taking risks in activities, often with little or no regard for personal safety or the safety of others. So these are common traits of people with ADHD or ADD. As an educator, we've all had students who have a difficulty keeping quiet or interrupt others when they're answering questions and fidget or can't sit still. So it doesn't mean that they are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, but these traits are common to many, many, many people. And today it might be interesting to think of how we can help our students, whether they're neurotypical or neurodivergent, and how we can help them deal with these forms of um, expressing themselves. So the main signs of ADHD in the classroom as are, as we said, having a short attention span, um, maybe not reading properly the instructions before doing an exercise, being unable to finish a task that we started, appearing to not be able to listen or needing to hold on a toy, fidget spinner or um, a stress ball and losing items that are needed, losing materials and equipment. Now there's also hyperactivity and impulsiveness, uh, not being able to sit still, fidgeting, excessive talking, um, acting without thinking first, interrupting the teachers and interrupting other students. And we can imagine how these traits in the classroom can really make behavior an issue and also can distract from the lesson and also lose time for all of us involved in the lesson. So it does affect teaching in the classroom and this is why it's so important for us teachers to know what to put in place so that everybody can work in harmony together, uh, whether we're neurotypical or whether we have signs of being neurodivergent or neurodiverse. So I made a, a list of tips I've used in my home life and at, at work as well to deal with my son's ADD, for instance, and also um, to help my students who have dyspraxia or autism. Reducing triggers, and I think that's the most important one. 
avoiding very loud and noisy environment, getting rid of alarm bells and announcement on tannoy, and also making sure the lighting in the classroom is not too abrupt or invasive. So this one is quite potent. I don't know how your school is, and uh, I can see that in the chat we have some listeners who are in Nigeria or in other places in the world. So I don't know how you can relate to having this um, noisy atmosphere in your classroom because it really depends on, on the school culture in your country and the buildings and how they're built. But in the UK, where I work, we have very often extremely loud alarm bells sounding between lessons to inform us that the lesson has stopped and that we need to change classroom. And I always noticed, because I'm myself very sensitive with my hearing, I always noticed how, how invasive that sound can be for someone who is on the spectrum. So you're gonna find it, maybe it might be a minute detail that was not necessary, but when I chose my, my current school, I did ask, how is the time announced? in the school and I was really glad to hear that it was a musical chime that resounded between lesson and uh, it was uh, the the receptionist voice if she had to make an announcement it would be her voice so, so a very human sound uh, the receptionist voice telling us or informing us if there was something out of the ordinary and I think it makes a big difference for our neurodiverse students to have a human voice they can recognize, the lady from the reception. Now, another tip you need to look at when you either work in a school or are looking for a school for your child who is neurodivergent is respecting a strict routine in the timetable and in the lesson planning. I think we underestimate how comforting it is to know that when you go to Mrs. or Mr.'s classroom, you know there will be the glues in the box at the same place. You know the teacher will start the lesson in the same way and you can find comfort in knowing that everything will be at the right place. Having an organized classroom really helps our students, uh, those with ADHD, for instance, who, who can misplace their equipment, if they know the glue is always in that first drawer and they can go and get it, it might save them time and also reduce that constant thinking we have to do to try and palliate with all the difficulties the day present. Now, another thing we need to do, because schools are organized in a very routine way, except that there's always something going on in the school. It might be science week, or it might be, it might be mock exam week, or it might be a group goes on a school trip. And this has a ripple effect that can really disturb our neurodiverse students in their routine. So I would also argue for giving ample time to prepare in case of change and allowing our students who find change really overwhelming to be informed ahead of others if need be. My, my advice I give for any educator is always know your student. This is the first step to differentiating the lesson planning. So if you know your student, if you talk to them, if you are aware that you have a student who is autistic or who, is, who has ADHD or dyspraxia, you might just want to ask them, could you stay with me or could we have a meeting, just five minutes, and then you're going to tell me how I can help you learn that will create a bond 
and your student will feel respected and will feel seen. And it's really important to know that your teacher has your back. So get to know your student and ask them what they need. I'm sure they'll give you a very, very useful answer. Differentiating is the job of the educator. I did my training not so long ago at university, three years ago. It got interrupted by lockdown number one, but we still managed to finish the year. And we did talk a lot about differentiating. Sadly, even though we had one day when we did training about uh, neurodivergence, one day in a full year of learning to become an educator is not a long time, which makes us feel sometimes ill-equipped to deal with all our students in the classroom who all have very different specific needs. So I would advise uh, teachers, educators to always listen to new advice and always look out whether you use Twitter or you use your peers or you read research, there's always good ideas you can grab and get inspired with. Now, another example I have to help you have a neurodivergent friendly classroom is to be flexible and to adapt to the needs of your students. And if we have to take breaks at times, or if you have to do a whole lesson on your student's favorite subject, even though it's off topic and it might not be what the GCSE exam requires, this is maybe the only way you get to reach out to your student and create or reinforce that bond you have with your students. So if your student is passionate about Cuban history, well, find a way you can add a little bit of Cuban history in your lesson. I'm aware it's going to be a bit dif difficult if you're a maths teacher, but I'm sure you can find one Cuban mathematician of renown that you can talk about. So be flexible. And if your uh, student who is neuroatypical has a topic of interest, please include it at one point in, in your lesson. It will make them chime with glee. Creating a safe place in your classroom. Now, that is maybe the most important aspect. If your students know that your classroom is a safe space where they can be themselves, where they won't be judged, they won't be discredited, they won't be admonished for being themselves, I think this is the sign of being a great educator. So I have a shelf in my classroom with works written by um, black authors. It was in the um, Black Lives Matter movement. I started collecting these books. And now I'm also going to add um, LGBTQ writers and I'm going to have a neurodiverse diverse, um, shelf where I'm going to show books that talk about people who are neuroatypical. Because I think it's very important as far as representation is concerned that your students can see that you have made a space for them to be represented and they can borrow the book if they're done with their activity and flick through the pages and it might just inspire them. So make your classroom a representation of all the students you might have. But also it has to be a safe place, which means that um, any bullying or any um, 
if a student is too shy to put their hands up, you can also tell them that they have the opportunity to write down a question in a, a confidential box. Just create, take a shoe box and have the confidential box, confidentiality box. And then they know that if they have a question, but they don't want to sit in front of everybody else, or they're too shy to speak, or they are nonverbal, or they might have a stutter as well, and they don't want to get too much attention on themselves. Get that confidentiality box, put it in an area where they can access it at the end of the lesson on their way out, maybe near the boxes where you put the books, and then the student can just drop that little message and you might answer it next time in the next lesson. It's very important that your student know that you'll be someone who has their back, someone who's not going to judge them and who's not going to put them on the spot because there's nothing worse if you're shy or if you're neurodiverse to have 30 pairs of eyes staring at you because you wanted to ask a question. So that confidentiality box might be very useful. Another thing that's really useful in, in UK schools and pretty much used in every school I've been to is the timeout pass. So when you have a student who has a medical need or uh, has a diagnosis of being neurodiverse, they have a timeout pass and usually it gives them the right to come out of the classroom for five minutes maximum in order to readjust, calm down, recess, and then come back in. I call it the reset button. Basically, it's um, when you need it. You just need some time out. And I think it's very useful. And we should give it to all students who need to have that time to their own. Neurodiversity training. So I, I was saying we had a day at university where we were taught about different forms of uh, neurodiversity, but that's not enough practical advice. Um, so there are a lot of websites now with videos with autistic people or people on the spectrum who are sharing their experience of learning in state schools. That's very useful to understand the challenges they face. But now if your teacher and you're aware of it, and you know what neurodivergent means and neurodiverse and neurotypical, and you want to go further and deeper in supporting your students, you are going to need some practical lesson planning tips for the teaching side of things. I found a few blogs uh, made by educators that are quite useful. So there's a blog called planbook.com, neurodiverse students, which gives you some very easy tips to put in place when you teach. And there is also Paul Main, who wrote a post, Neurodiversity in the Classroom, a Teacher's Guide. And it's on the website, uh, www.structural-learning.com. So you might want to peruse these websites and get some ideas on how to put in place simple tasks that are very good and helpful for your students. Now, as I was saying, it's important to have that safe place. So I'm going to quote um, one of these um, bloggers who are uh, educators and work on making classrooms more neurodiverse friendly. Psychological safety can be defined as having the belief that you will not be humiliated or teased for the ideas you offer 
for asking questions and admitting to one's mistakes. So I think it's our duty as educators to really nip in the bud any attempt to bully or belittle or mock students when they ask questions. And I'm, I'm hoping that most teachers avoid that themselves, but it's not enough. And we, we really need to censor these attempts to shut people down. Um, I think it's um, how you protect democracy in your society and, and also in your classroom by not allowing uh, hate and belittling to be part of the classroom. So I always tell my students, if they're being unkind, I always tell them what you just said was unkind and I'm, and I'm giving you a reminder that this is not acceptable in a classroom. And I always explain to them that I always use a welcoming professional language and term, terms, and I would never try and belittle someone if they ask a question and I expect them to follow these rules themselves. So really as a teacher, the first step to making your classroom safe and neurodivergent friendly is to censor bullying. It should not be acceptable in the classroom setting. Now, we all make mistakes. We're all humans and we might not always say the right things. I'm just gonna tell you about what I've seen in uh, when I was a student myself, but also in my daily practice in different schools. If you have neurodiverse students, you need to make sure that you don't come too close to them when you talk to them. This is something we've, we should all be quite aware of because of COVID. Remember the one meter or two meters distance. Uh, I think we should keep this because we have a lot of students who do not want to have someone who talks loud too close to them because of these sensory um, sensibilities I talked about. So don't come too close to a student when you talk to them out of respect. So respect their boundaries and their safe space around them. I also uh, noticed that, and I find it extremely aggressive amongst colleagues, when they shout at a student and they are too close and they shout literally in their faces. I try because I, I don't have a very strong voice. I, I hope it's not uh, making you listen to my voice too difficult, but it's really difficult to keep your voice going as a teacher. This is your main instrument. And if you abuse your voice, first you're gonna damage it and you're not gonna be able to teach anymore. And also it is disrespectful. So I always avoid shouting. And I really can't insist enough when you have students who are neurodiverse, do not shout at them. You can, you can show authority and you can tell them if they've done something wrong, but you do not raise your voice at them. Another advice, that I think should be obvious. It's don't touch your students. Um, I mean, touching, you know, that when you try and maybe want you want them to walk in such direction or another, and then you, you put your hand on their arms, it might be something you just naturally do and you don't even, f f you don't even notice it. But for someone who is very um, particular about touch, it can be painful. And there's a, there's a book I'm going to recommend later on, uh, The Kiss Quotient by Helen Hoang. And she explains very well how 
a very light touch is hurtful to her and she prefers when someone touches her and first warns her before touching and also then holds tight and quite strongly because for her these very soft touches triggers something in her nerv nervous system that is equal to pain so be really 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 careful and try not to touch your students who have sensory um, differences now i'm going to talk about something that is cultural and that you might disagree with I don't know, maybe you could use the chat and tell me what you think about this, if you have access to uh, the chat today. What do you think about eye contact? Well, my opinion is, I know in England, we, we ask students to make eye contact when we have a conversation with them. But I know in other cultures, it's a, it's a sign of submission that you do not make eye contact with an adult and you have to lower your gaze. Um, for neurodiverse students, making eye contact can be really painful and difficult. So I would not ask my students to make eye contact with me when I talk to them, if they find it uncomfortable. Uh, I understand that there's a lot of power exchanges in the gaze and it can be as potent as um, touch. So please be aware if you know if you if you know who is a neurodiverse in your class don't insist on eye contact because it might be just triggering i mentioned shouting i mentioned touching now i'm going to advise uh, teachers to remember to use a very neutral and even tone so i'm not asking you to sound like a robot because that would be dispiriting but we need to be aware that 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 voice we have is a super, super effective instrument and we shouldn't raise it too often. It loses its potency if we raise our voice. If it's a matter of safety, if a child has a pair of scissors in their hands and you might need to raise your voice, then do so. But try and keep that professional, calm, even tone going, particularly when you feel a bit of anger yourself. I think it's really important to keep that safe space and um, the students will really be on your side if they know that you don't lose your, temp your temper and you keep it cool. Now, I have a friend who was a guest speaker two weeks ago, who is um, an amazing TA, teaching assistant, and he's got a very quirky sense of humor. The thing is, until the age of nine or 10, a lot of students, a lot of children, don't always understand the concept of irony or sarcasm. So my advice is with some of your neurodiverse students, you might need to avoid irony, even if it's your favorite mode of um, making humor. You might also want to avoid some analogies and use of comparison of metaphor and images and there's a great example in hannah gatsby's comedy shows it's on netflix if you want to um, watch and listen to her she's a, she's an autistic comedian and she's she's fabulous and she explains that once her teacher used the example of a penguin in a box to talk about preposition so she would say look the penguin is on the box the penguin is 
next to the box and the penguin is in the box. Next, in and on are prepositions. And throughout that whole grammar point, Hannah Gatsby, when she was little, couldn't stop thinking, but why would the penguin go inside the box? <laughs> so we need to be careful with the images we use, even in grammar. It can really confuse our neurodiverse student. And I think the issue with Hannah's educator, bear in mind it was in the early 80s when she was in primary school in uh, Tasmania. Um, so the problem is now I'm hoping little Hannah would put a hand up and say, but miss, why is the penguin in the box? And I'm hoping that the teacher would say, oh, that's an interesting question, Hannah. Um, I guess the penguin just wanted to see what's inside the box and then move on with the lesson about preposition. But little Hannah in Tasmania in the early 80s didn't, didn't dare ask the question because of other peers' censorship. You know, she was scared of the reaction from her peers. So she didn't ask the question and she missed the whole of the lesson because she was so confused by that penguin in the box. So I really think if you have created a very safe classroom space, if your students believe in you and know they can trust you, then they'll ask the question and then you can just explain to them that it was just an example or a funny image. Right, now I'm asking you, imagine you're in your school, the one you go to if you're a teacher or the one you used to go to if you are no longer in education. Or maybe the one that your parents um, are visiting because you're going to start school or your cousin's going to start school. Imagine yourself walking in that classroom, walking in the corridors, in the entrance, at the reception. Is the setting inclusive for neurodiverse students? What about the lighting? Is it brutal, harsh neon lights or is it more subdued and calm? What about the bell? Is it really loud? Is it going to make you flinch every time you hear it? What about the displays on the walls? Are there too many? Are the colours a little bit too primary and aggressive? Are the walls too bare? These are important questions you need to ask if you are about to sign your child in a school, if your child is neurodiverse, because that environment is where your child is going to spend most of their awake time. Your child is going to be at school from eight in the morning till up to four in the afternoon. That's a big chunk of their time. So you need to make sure it is conducive to learning. And remember, you can change the way your, the school is. If you're an educator or if you're a parent already in a school, you can get SLT, so senior leadership team, to change and adapt the school setting to make the building more inclusive for neurodivergent people. And can I just say it should be more inclusive for disabled students who are in need of a wheelchair or who have reduced mobility. It's not just ramps and lifts. It might also be the lightning and the sounds. And um, this has a big impact on stress levels. We are all talking about stress and mental health right now. And I think if we made our classrooms and schools more neurodiverse friendly, 
it might benefit all the people who use the school. Another thing we can do to improve our schools in the UK and everywhere else, we can organize a neurodiverse club for students. I had that brilliant example in one school, that, in one school I visited. There is an LGBTQ student club. It's by invitation only. And um, the students meet in confidentiality and they can talk and exchange about their LGBTQ experience. Why don't we have a um, neurodiverse club where students can exchange about their experiences and offer a list of changes to put in place to make the school more neurodiverse friendly? I think if there is one club that would be necessary for um, Autism Awareness Month, it would be a neurodiverse club. I'm putting this idea out there. Now, I mentioned parents, and we're going to talk to our parents very soon with our guest speaker of the day after four o'clock in five minutes. Get the parents involved. Most parents are really willing to help their neurodiverse child, getting them to share the good practice, what works at home for them, having them involved in decision-making for options. What is the best option for your child for their GCSE if your child is non-verbal, for instance? Sharing, communicating, consultation, collaboration with parents are essential, whether the child is neurodiverse or neurotypical. Now, I mentioned it earlier, inclusivity won't hurt neurotypical children. A lot of parents of neurotypical parents students are going to say, my child is neurotypical, so it doesn't matter if the alarm bell is too loud, or it doesn't matter if there's too much clutter on the displays. Well, it does actually, because all the tips and the strategies you can use in your classroom to make your neurodiverse students more at ease, they're going to have a positive virtue cycle effect on the neurotypical students. By teaching all the students to self-regulate and to be able to name the emotions they're feeling, we're going to have a new generation who is more aware of their emotional needs. By recognizing triggers and what to do when you feel triggered, we might help our neurotypical students to deal with their anger and our neurodiverse students to reduce um, burnout when they have too much sensory overload. By being emotionally aware of all our needs, we might act better to prevent uh, mental health illnesses as well among staff as well as students. And by being able to choose our own learning style, we might work on self-independent learning, which is a skill everybody needs from school. So by making your classroom neurodiverse friendly, you make everybody more empowered. And I really think this is the most important part of today's topic. If you help your neurodiverse students, you help all your students. Now, just before we get into our news, um, I wanted to say, oh, I think our, our speaker is willing to join us. Let's do it then. I'm going to play the generic first. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. So I think our guest speaker has arrived. Hiya, thanks for having me. I'm Kat. Hello, Kat. Lovely to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kat, um, let me just introduce you briefly. Um, you are a specialist of neurodivergence because you have experience of neurodivergence in your family. Yep. Yeah. So could you just tell us um, what sort of family you have and um, how many children, that sort of things? Yeah, totally. Um, so I am on the autistic spectrum myself. Um, I've been informally diagnosed as a lot of adult women have been lately. We've got, you know, Hannah Gadsby, Christine McGinnis, Melanie Sykes, Susan Boyle, lots of people getting, you know, an autism diagnosis later because we've slipped through the cracks where we had, you know, low support needs and it didn't really show when we were younger. And now today we know you know, autism doesn't necessarily present um, typically uh, the same way in um, different people, especially girls, because they mask it. So mm -hmm. my dad, my dad is probably on the spectrum. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that he does. He's quite eccentric. But back in the day, he was called, you know, eccentric. He wasn't diagnosed, yes. you know. Autism back in the day was, you know, somebody who had perhaps intellectual dis disabilities and, you um, you know, who, who didn't cope with life um, in the way that we, we'd think that some people do. Um, so my dad is on the spectrum, I'm on the spectrum, and my son is on the spectrum. He was flagged up as a possibly uh, autistic child in year three, but it took until year five to get him a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, so you said your your father, who is from uh, obviously an older generation, didn't yeah. have his diagnosis. What what is the use of getting a diagnosis? What do you think changes once you have a diagnosis? Well, you know that's a really good question. Um, some people think there's a stigma attached to it, and that's one of the reasons I'm not going for a diagnosis because you know it goes on your record, and they go, oh, you know, this person's autistic, and um, there might be some stigma to it there might be you know people will start talking to you more slowly that kind of thing i would definitely notice that my mm -hmm. dad is my dad is 81 i don't think he's going to go for a diagnosis but he he you know he knows he's 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 different he's always known he's different and i think for some people having that kind of validation that you are different is really important to them and that's why they go for the diagnosis okay so why did you choose to go for a diagnosis for your child well, that's a really good question. I think when you're a kid and you're not diagnosed, you have less protection within the system. I mean, a diagnosis isn't required for schools to be able to understand and support children. And what you were saying earlier about, you know, how supporting neurodivergent students supports everybody. You're completely right about that. And what I would also add to that is there's a fair amount of children not getting diagnosed or on the waiting list. You've got uh, the BBC reported 130 children waiting at least three years in the Coventry and Warwickshire area. 
And, you know, that's three years for a diagnosis. They've got over 700 kids waiting for an assessment. And that's just one area. So Mm -hmm. you've got kids waiting for this. And some schools may not give as much support if you don't have a diagnosis. You don't. It's more of a protection thing for me. I would say, you know, my son's autistic. He needs a little he needs an early lunch pass. He's got that because he can't cope with cues. He's mm-hmm. got, um, recently they gave him a, uh, he's in year nine. So he's got an additional educational needs test to see if he needs accommodations during GCSEs. Yes. And that's maybe one of the important aspects of having your diagnosis is that you might get more time for your GCSE exams. Yeah. And that's really important because if you've got, for example, auditory processing disorder, where, you know, you, if you've got an oral component to an exam, then you definitely need some accommodations there. Or, you know, if you're dyspraxic and your handwriting is um, perhaps a little bit sloppy, then maybe getting um, an accommodation to work on a laptop instead. Indeed. So now you've established why it's important to get a diagnosis for a child in the school system. Uh, Could you just describe us what are the particular needs? Um, We are remaining confidential, obviously, we're not naming your child, but what are the needs that your child has? Well, my my son is, um, well, you know, they call him high functioning. And there's 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 a move away from labeling. There's a label called high functioning and there's a label called low functioning. And I think a lot of people are trying to move away from that and they're trying to use support needs instead. So if you're high functioning, they might say, oh, yeah, I know he's high functioning. He doesn't need a lot of support. So blah, blah, blah. Well, let's call it. Let's frame it in terms of support needs. Let's say he's got some support needs and don't take them away from him. He's, he needs to go to lunch early because waiting in queues, there's people who cut in line and he gets upset about that or, mm-hmm. you know, he might need extra time for handwriting, that kind of thing. And if you label somebody as low, um, sorry, low functioning, you're taking mm-hmm. away part of your humanity. And yes. let's frame this. Let's move away. Let's reframe this. Let's go. You've got low support needs. You've got medium support needs and you've got high support needs. Maybe a high support needs child needs a TA, a one-on-one, that kind of thing. And a low supports need child like my son may need higher support needs on a different day when he's struggling. So reframing it from high function, away from high functioning, away from low functioning into a support needs model is what I see a lot of people trying to do. And I really support that. Yeah, I think it goes with uh, Rebecca Berger's illustration of the spectrum as a circle of colors with different needs according to their needs because as you said you might need a TA for a child who is not independent enough to get dressed or to go to the toilet but if you have a child who has very extreme ability in science they might still need a lot of help with the emotional side and the social cues so it's it all depends on their skills and they, they need something that's definitely targeted and tailored, don't they? Yes, you're 100% right on that. You see, um, you know, for example, non-speakers who uh, have difficulty or they have speech apraxia or maybe uh, selective mutism, um, they, they're not, you know, they, they don't necessarily have intellectual disabilities. They might be extremely good at something, but... People are writing them off because they don't communicate in a way they expect. They don't communicate verbally. So I think mm-hmm. reframing everything toward 
what do you need in terms of support in order to live your best life? Is to what we should be focusing on now. Exactly. Uh, what are your needs and how can I help you? Should be yes. the, the way we deal with anything in schools. Um, I just wanted to ask you, how do you feel your child is supported in his current school setting? I'm really happy with the support that he receives in school. Um, when I went to look at the school, they were they didn't sweep their special educational needs kids under the rug. They had them up for, you know, autism awareness, autis autistic pride, that kind of thing. They had these kids out and about. They have autistic ambassadors. They have mm -hmm. a special area for kids who perhaps need uh, have sensory issues. Like, you know, if they need to go somewhere to get out of the classroom, they've got a place for them. And my son, again, he doesn't have high support needs, but he does have some support needs. And so they're very quick on the draw. If I say, hey, look, he's really, you know, struggling with school lately because of social issues or because, you know, he's, he's a bit ill or, you know, he needs um, when he's ill, he has lower tolerance toward, for example, loud sounds and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. They're mm -hmm. very quick. And I, I, I asked them, um, look, what he's really struggling during lunch and they suggested getting him an early lunch pass and they wrote it on everything so all his teachers know he gets to go 10 minutes early to lunch so that he doesn't get caught up in the queues and i just that's, you know that's really brilliant that's fabulous so they're very aware and they're very responsive yes and um i i just can't fault them at all i think they're they're extremely good and i don't know if they're an anomaly because they do focus on um, autistic kids. They do have a, a place for them. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, my son doesn't have any EHCP. I think EHCPs are really difficult to get these days. But yes. the, the fact that, you know, they do support kids and they do support kids who don't necessarily have a diagnosis. And, you know, as I said before, a diagnosis isn't required for schools to be able to understand and support children. But, you know, some Some schools might kind of need that extra push, and this school doesn't. And I really appreciate that. Good. So I'm, I'm glad to, to hear that your school is very supportive. What would be, according to you, the ideal neurodivergent-friendly school? And what would it look like? Right. Well, what, what you were saying earlier about if you make it friendly for neurodivergent students, you're making it friendly for basically everybody else. And I love that. So... Gosh, there's a lot to say for an ideal school. And I think uh, one of the really important parts is parent and teachers and administration, especially working together to get the best results for the child. And, you know, working together and saying, look, let's nip the problems in the bud before they become a major problem, before you get school refusal and anxious children. Let's work together and be flexible on both sides as much as possible. So if you've got in, in a really anxious kid coming in, let's make it easy for the kid to come in. Let's, you know, have a transition. Let's help their tutor be aware that, you know, maybe they're having problems coming to school. Let's, um, as much as we can, set up home learning support, that kind of thing. Making sure, you know, sensory, um, as much as possible, sensory issues are respected. So kids mm -hmm. can walk around the school wearing ear defenders if necessary. And That's a good idea. cutting down on, um, you know, any teasing, let's make it, let's normalize things. Let's normalize neurodivergency. 
and say, right, this is what this kid needs. Let's not tease them about it. If a kid is, for example, stimming, if they've got a fidget cube or, you know, that kind of thing. There's, there's, there was one interesting accommodation. Uh, I went to an autism conference a few years ago, a very small one. And they did what they called flap laws instead of applause. And instead of clapping, they flapped. They flapped their hands. They wiggled their hands in the air. And um, I thought that was really interesting. That's a great idea. I never thought about it. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to try and include it in my lesson planning, actually. Let's practice our flap hands. <laughs> That's <a good> idea. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit strange doing it. But, you know, for ex I I've got issues with auditory stuff sometimes. And it's a bit too loud for me. And, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes I'll just kind of hang my head over and cover my ears a little bit just discreetly. But mm -hmm. when we had the applause, the flap laws instead of the applause, it really, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. And, um, you know, especially during uh, Autism Awareness Month, which is April, um, yeah. hey, maybe try it's, it out. Who knows? It's a great idea also because sometimes when we, you let the students applaud and they get carried away and they start stomping their feet and then it's really hard to get them back on track. So a uh, flat pause might be the key for success. Um, I wanted to ask you um, something else. So what do you think in your personal experience is the biggest barrier facing neurodivergent children in their learning and in their experiencing the world around them? I would say that the biggest barrier is access. And this could take different forms for different children. Once again, autism and anxiety often go hand in hand. So if you get a child who's anxious about going to a new place on a field trip or a school trip, making, making sure they can access this by, for example, showing them pictures of where they're going to go, showing them pictures of how they're going to travel, um, having a dedicated student buddy who's quite confident and they can spend time with this child on the field trip, that kind of thing. So I think accessibility is really the biggest challenge. And the more accessible we make things, the better it's going to be for everybody, like you were saying earlier. I think it's a great tip, the preparing the, the school trip. And um, I, I just wish we had a pack, you know, the, maybe the Autism Awareness Month pack to give to teachers with these little tips. Because sometimes you start your career as a teacher and you really want to help all your students, but you don't have the resource and you've never actually had to imagine how it feels to walk in the shoes of a of a child who's got neurodive who is neurodiverse so all these little tips are brilliant and i think we should find them in one pack or website definitely something to think about um can i ask you another question kat um go for it what thank you what would you like to say to a new teacher let's say someone who is at university preparing their pgc hoping to start next year in a new school what would you say to that teacher if that teacher was going to teach your child well you know first and foremost i would say thank you in advance because i know how difficult it is to be a teacher in these days i'm seeing a lot of people talking about burnout, especially during the pandemic, when a lot of them bent over backward to reach out to their kids, give a phone call home to, to, to students and say, look, if you need some extra time um, and extra help, I'll make some time to do that. So that's the first thing I would say is I would say thanks 
for going into the teaching profession. Um, and the second thing I would say is neurodivergency can be very individual. You know, you don't get, you, you know, autism is an umbrella and you get, you know, the kids underneath this umbrella, but they're all individuals. And um, you can do kind of best practice things like, you know, like again, flaws instead of applause. Um, you can give them a movement break, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. But being being flexible is the second thing I would say. Being as flexible as possible um, and getting to know the kid would be really appreciated. I mean, as, as much as possible. I know that there's, you know, 30 other or 29 other kids or 30 other kids to, to deal with. And it's it's difficult getting to know each one on an individual level. But I always really appreciate the teachers who kind of take that extra time to figure out what makes my son tick and, um, you know, just basically be on a level with him, a communication level, find out what he likes and dislikes and just, you know, reach out to him a little bit. That's what I'd say. I guess, thank you for, for that, Kat. I think it's uh, the meeting of two people, isn't it? Yes. And uh, this is, this is what makes teaching fabulous is that you, obviously you're going to come with your subject knowledge and your lesson all prepared, but it's how the children resonate with what you bring. And this is what, where the beauty is. Um, yeah. And I think it's really exciting that you, you're saying that it's just finding out a way to connect, really. And um, yeah. the rest will naturally happen. And by being flexible, open-minded, non-judgmental, I think that's how we can approach um, our neurodiverse students and our neurotypical students for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I think you're 100% right. And especially the non-judgmental thing. That's absolutely brilliant. I agree with you. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Kat. It was really informative. And um, I wish you and your children all the best. And I'm hoping you're going to enjoy your holidays. Oh, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful Easter. And thanks for having me on. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye, Kat. Bye. All right, so we had the lovely cat talking to us. Now we're going to listen to the news. I hope you join me after the news. Thank you. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, 
Let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. A report on the Russell Group University's website details the group's response to the invasion of Ukraine. The response includes scholarships for displaced students, support for academics who have fled their homes, and repurposing accommodation blocks to house refugees. Universities within the Russell Group, like many universities across the UK, have reviewed any collaborations or other links they may have had with Russia and are taking appropriate action. King's College London is working with Citizens UK on ways to bring Ukrainians to Britain as part of the Homes for Ukraine, whilst the University of Nottingham is actively looking to repurpose unused buildings to provide accommodation for refugees. Alongside this, the University of Manchester are creating an emergency fund to help provide support for students and academics displaced by the conflict, with other universities looking to provide sanctuary scholarships. Full details of the group's full response can be found on the Russell Group website. In related news, England's Secretary of State for Education has sent a letter to local authority chief executives and directors of children's services, recognising their efforts in supporting families arriving from Afghanistan and Hong Kong, and those arriving as asylum seekers. The letter goes on to make it clear that those arriving into the UK following the Russian invasion of Ukraine have the right to access education and childcare. Local authorities should be looking to provide places and use flexibilities to admit above published admission numbers if necessary, as well as reminding schools of safeguarding duties and promoting the welfare of all children. A copy of the letter can be found on the government website. Wales Online reports on the huge problems faced by the country's schools as a result of COVID. More than 15% of school staff in some parts of the country are absent and there is a lack of supply cover to stand in. Head teachers have said they are concerned for pupils and their attainment, with COVID restrictions being eased in the community having a major impact as infections rise. The Association of School and College Leaders warned that staff are crawling towards the end of term and that there are fears amongst many school leaders that the situation will continue into the next term. Staff absence levels have been so high in a number of schools that whole year groups have been sent home to work online because teachers who test positive are following advice to self-isolate. 
but many teachers report they have felt unwell and would have not been able to attend anyway. In Grimsby, a school crossing patroller who is thought to be England's longest serving lollipop lady has retired after 57 years. In Africa, 23 countries are yet to fully reopen schools with more than 400 million school children from across the continent affected. A UNICEF report released this week warns that education risks becoming the greatest divider as the pandemic enters its third year. It points out that 147 million children missed more than half of their in-person schooling over the past two years, which amounts to two trillion hours of lost in-person learning globally. The report also warns that as the pandemic enters its third year, the situation in schools across Africa cannot just go back to normal. The continent needs a new normal because the stakes are too high to do anything else. The full report can be found on the UNICEF website. In Grimsby, a school crossing patroller who is thought to be England's longest serving lollipop lady has retired after 57 years. Beryl Quantrill, 85, started work in 1964 and has helped generations of youngsters to cross the roads outside of schools. Her final shift took place on Friday outside of Cleethorpe's Infant and Nursery School. Mrs Quantrill isn't giving up supporting local youngsters altogether, however, as she has been invited into the school to sit with the children to hear them read. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. Dear listeners, we have heard the news and we are back with our topic, which was neurodivergence or neurodiversity. So we had our lovely guest, Kat, who talked about her experience being um, a parent. And also um, she described her family as uh, being a neurodiverse family with her father first and then herself and her son who got his diagnosis and is currently in a secondary school. Now, the key points established by Kat were that the teacher should be flexible, open-minded, um, that it was important to create a relationship based on understanding, that we shouldn't allow belittling in the classroom, and that um, Kat argued that a diagnosis is very helpful because in the current school system, it allows the child to have extra time for exams, but also support for uh, when it's needed. She also um, was very thankful of her current school because she said it had a very positive outlook on autism and it celebrated uh, the students who were neurodiverse with having uh, uh, autism ambassadors and um, that her son was very well catered for. So now I wanted to um, share with you some books about the subject of neurodivergence. We've moved a long way from Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise in 1988. Now we know more about neurodiversity and we know that it is of every everybody who is neurodiverse is different and there's not two people who have the same way of perceiving the world around them so i'm going to advise you to read a few of these novels some are targeted for students or children and some are for adults mostly so the most famous one uh, is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, written by Mark Haddon in 2003. It's a novel and it's also a play, and I think it's a great read for teenagers. Um, 
ideally it would be great to read in a school setting and then to take the students for a school trip and see the play because the play is very interactive it's the the mise-en-scene is just amazing with lots of different aspects there's visual arts there's holograms there's maths there's science there's obviously the actors but movements and everything is really so well thought through it's a delight of a play so if you can take your students or your children there it would be such a treat after reading the book now there's another novel um, in a romance kind of setting um, by Helen Hoang published in 2018 entitled The Kiss Quotient and it's very very good to make the reader understand how uh, someone who is on the spectrum experiences the world um, there's a lot on the idea of touch sensory perception taste the importance of wearing the right fabric um, having something that's considered uncomfortable becomes almost an obsession and the person can't function if uh, they're wearing a piece of clothing that is distracting them and also how to avoid triggers and how to avoid burnout i think it's a whole series uh, written by helen hoang the kiss quotient is the first book in the series and it's really interesting to walk in the shoes of someone who is neurodivergent or neurodiverse. A great read for children and teenagers is The Reason I Jump by Naoki Igashida. Um, it's the story, it's an autobiography by a 13-year-old non-verbal author from Japan. Uh, it's uh, the child devised a way to communicate with his mother and then together they wrote the book to show how um, how he feels and how he perceives the world around him so it's autobiographical and it's really important for educators to read so that you can support your students who are nonverbal. and now um, much famous much more famous Temple Grandin the way I see it a personal look at autism so this is um, a woman who is now i think in her late 50s and her, she is autistic and she shares um experiences of her childhood as well kat mentioned it our guest speaker mentioned it earlier when she said that she was never diagnosed herself because girls are very good at mimicking the behaviors that they're expected to show and um, they are very good at filling you know that norm we mentioned about and um, they are usually either misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all and then they don't receive the support they might need in some aspects of their lives so i think reading temple grandin's book the way i see it might help to understand how girls present um, with their autism because it's very different from the way boys might present with their autism. So it was a delight to talk to you today um, on this Sunday afternoon and I hope you had a great time in my company. I wish to speak with you again next Sunday and by then I wish you a delightful week. Thank you. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.